The roughies and the toughies don't bother me Just cause they're bigger and meaner than me So you, you were saying back on episode number three The Xander special That you That Polly in my pocket Your most recent book about travelling around and doing stuff hadn't been as successful as you hoped but i see that you've just got it you've just got it reprinted so well that's that so that's good then isn't it well i think um i suppose you can say the fact that it came out at all is uh is a success because uh as usual it was down to you for doing the design and thank you very much oh. uh, the the poly uh is the name of our little camper van hmm. and uh she's so called because you probably won't remember this, but uh, when our kids were young, there was a, a craze at the time called uh, Polly Pocket, which is these tiny little sort of round, about the size of a wagon wheel biscuit, uh, um, plastic thing. And inside it, uh, an entire little house full of minuscule miniature uh, elements. And I don't know when how they got away with it, really, because... Uh, you think about the, the the potential for swallowing them and doing yourself yeah, you unthinkable damage. You could choke to death on that. Well, you certainly could, yeah. but, uh, well, having said that, I can't remember enough detail about them to know whether they, they were. I remember the controversy about when Kinder Eggs were supposed to be quite dangerous, but I notice uh, now that I've got a granddaughter that they still exist and they still have tiny, tiny little components. So I think in the main, kids probably don't tend to swallow bits of plastic. They're more sensible, but... So there we go. Uh, but uh, this camper van uh, is not the first one I've ever had. I, I had uh, a VW proper, like, a you know, like you imagine if I say a camper van, you immediately think of a VW, don't you? Yeah. And people that know about the history of them will remember the split screen ones. And nowadays they're particularly yeah, rare. desirable. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, I bought one of these things <laughs> for a rather suspiciously small amount of money, around about 1980, I think it would have been, uh, with the intention of going to festivals and things like that. Uh -huh. uh, inevitably, of course, within days, the uh, the whole thing had ground to a halt. And the, the first two excursions that we took, we had to be towed home by the AA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, story of every, everything I've ever, ever, ever had to do with cars and mechanical things um oh hello is that poppy he, talking of, yeah that's poppy so we've got, Hi, poppy. got guest appearance from poppy oh this is fantastic hello my dear the trouble is she's not a very meowy cat she's just meowed once to say hello and now what she'll do is stick her tail up my nostrils which is what she's doing now she'll just destroy she, the microphone that's what she's well she'll probably do. attack the microphone and, and rip it to be pieces with her talons which uh oh god well, uh, if you hear me sort of uh, screaming in agony, it means because she's uh, she decided you. to she go for my kneecaps or something. She but. doesn't like podcasts. <laughs> yes. So we did have a cat called Poppy, but this one is called uh, Polly. Uh, sorry, the other way around. We had a cat called Polly <laughs> once um, and we got a van called Polly. And I'm, I'm not drunk. I am, haven't been touching the Estella Artois at all. I've just had a cup of tea. You, but, you're not uh, drunk. You're just very bad at thinking up new names. That's, yes. <laughs> And, I, and and rather sort of frightened when I get attacked by a feline uh, stuka, but there we go. <sighs> what was I talking about? Oh, yes, yeah, so it was a long and awful story, which I won't bore you with, but it ended up with uh, this um, garage in Kingsworthy 
uh, forcing me to spend huge amounts of money trying to repair the van and then announcing that uh, it was irreparable. And um, so that was very upsetting because uh, I had no money in the bank at all then. And uh, even more upsetting was uh, a couple of weeks later, after I'd finally thrown in the towel with this thing, I saw the uh, garage owner driving around Winchester actually in it. Uh, so he basically just fancied it himself and uh, did it up, got it working, and, and it became his van. Oh, very um, not sneaky. Only, yeah. So I actually paid him to take it away. Did, I, did, you, did you ever know that Trip had one of those vans as well? What, a split-screen VW? Not a split-screen. We had a green ex-Dutch Army one. Mm. And um, our story about how, where it ended up is basically if, if we have an equivalent of what happened with you seeing somebody drive around in your old van, the person mm. driving around in our old van would be Peter Gabriel because oh. we, 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 we drove it down to real world where we did mm. our, our last kind of proper bit of recording and it broke down there. So we just thought, well, we'll, we'll leave it. And and let Peter Gabriel deal with it. So, <laughs> so we just we we just left and drove off some other way, and that was the last we saw of our van. So yeah, well, if anybody's been down in Box or Bath or anywhere that way and seen Gabriel driving around in a green ex Dutch army van, then um yeah, that's that's the trip mobile. Marco Pierre White has his uh, restaurant and uh, eccentric hotel in Box, so maybe he's got really? it in the garden. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we stayed there once. I can't Very imagine those two, those two getting on. I can't imagine. I'm not well, saying no, they're this... mates, but Gabriel and Marco Pierre White, that sounds a bit <laughs> uh, an odd one. It... Yes, because Marco Pierre White is uh, very much in favour of meat and stuff like that, which I can imagine Peter Gabriel probably isn't. But No, he's, uh... he's very, very into his yoga. He yes. Used to, <laughs> used to do yoga every morning and ask us whether we wanted to sort of join him. Um <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't because the food the food was free and you could eat what you want. So that's what we oh, were doing. We were eating food, much. yeah, <laughs> and playing table tennis. Ah, table tennis. Well, there we go. That's another entire hour's worth we can talk about at a later stage. Yeah. Uh, so there I uh, was without a van, but for years and years we wished we could have one, and uh, eventually we ended up with one. But while the van was working, on one of the rare occasions when it was working, the first one. Um, the first one, yeah. yes, which didn't didn't have a nickname. I, I, I probably hated it too much to give it a nickname. Poggy. Um, it would have been called Poggy or something. Poggy. Probably. <laughs> Piggy. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's too much of an I there rather than an O, but yeah, go on. <laughs> I, so last week it was punctuation and now it's vowels. This is very interesting. We'll have to have a grammar <laughs> session at some stage. Uh, I drove this van out to uh, Salisbury Plain. And in the middle of Salisbury Plain, there's this tiny little village called Durrington. Hmm. And at the time, I was writing for a, a music weekly called Musicians Only. And they expected me to go and review at least one band a week because I was their sort of southern correspondent. And so I looked in the gig listings and I saw that there was a band playing in the Plough Inn in Durrington. Hmm. And uh, the band was called The Time. I, oh. I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing of them whatsoever. But interesting that you immediately react with sort of, oh. oh yes. I yes. just went, went misty-eyed again. Those were the days. Well, we, you can tell us about your experiences at the time shortly. But uh, how I first met them was by walking into this pub. And uh, I thought, I'm going to be a bit out of place here. It was a tiny place. 
tiny little room and uh, in it was this enormous PA uh, big enough to sort of fill most of the room and uh, complete with a very large mixing desk. I always love to see that, go into a little pub and see a huge PA. It's happened to me quite a few times. Um, but there was a slightly sort of edgy atmosphere and I could I could tell that there was a support band uh, all who, of whom were all very sort of creaky leather jackets with paintings on the back and the band was called Passchendaele which I also was a rather tasteless name for a band but I think they were the reason that the time were there this is obviously the local band and they'd seen them and I'd asked them to come along hmm. and standing behind the uh, mixing desk was this little tiny skinny little bloke with do you remember at that time uh, the police were sort of fashionable and I mean the band and uh, they weren't wearing sort of uh, policemen's hats and carrying truncheons but they did uh, or this little guy had um, this peroxide blonde hair mm. a, la, a la sting yeah and normally I would be far too shy to go and speak to anybody like that but Part of the deal when you wrote these reviews for Magicians Only was that you had to include a complete list of all their gear. Oh, my God. Extraordinarily boring, as you might imagine. Hence why it's and called Musicians Only, because nobody else in the world is, is going to read it, are they? Well, they're not remotely interested in no. the, the gear. Um, so there we were. So I, I, I had to go and speak to this guy. And anyway, I cut the whole thing short. The, the time turned out to be a revolution. A revolution? A revelation. Almost That's what I'm a revelation. For. It's another vowel issue. We need to we need to combat <laughs> this. Um, I they turned out to be the most sensational band, and in a minute maybe you can describe what they look like. But anyway, they they they, they were post punk. They were fantastic, and I immediately my immediate instant thought was this band is going to be absolutely mm. huge. Mm. There is no way that that this band is going to fail. They're going to be massively successful because they were so exciting and above all they were fun and uh so i went up and i talked to this guy and his name was paul and to cut it very short i know you and i are very good friends and so is paul with me and i've been an absolutely bosom pal of paul's ever since that day amazingly we just sort of hit it off instantly and, uh, and this, is, still... this is Paul, the manager, Paul Dominey. Yes, this yeah. is Paul. Yes. He, so he was the manager and the sound engineer and uh -huh. generally in charge of everything that the time did. Yeah. So I duly went home and I wrote my rave review about them. And then on the basis of that, they commissioned me to write an interview. So I, we did an interview. And then uh, Birgit, my wife, and I started going to pretty much all their gigs. Yeah. And they did a lot of gigs locally. Um. Tell me what what you remember, and then I'll see if oh. uh, if it chimes with what I remember about that band. It probably would be really different. Um, in so, I mean, I only saw them a handful of times because mm -hmm. I was a nipper. I mean, I saw them down the the railway once. I think mm -hmm. supported by Orlando the Cat. Oh, that's quite possible. Yeah, seven, seven, yeah. Um, and I saw them at the Tower for that burnt offerings gig. Yes. That was right at the end of their career, in inverted commas. Yeah, and then I, th I have a feeling I saw them either once or twice more. I think twice at the railway, probably, Rich. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But but like you said, they were, oh, I don't know how old I would have been, sort of 14, 15 or something like that. And they, they, 
they were kind of the first sort of local in inverted commas band that I'd ever seen where you 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 really thought you were watching a band or you knew you were watching a band who could like stand up to anybody else you know like the, so it was yes. the, the first like you said it for you I'm sure it happened before but this was the first local band I'd ever seen where I thought God, these guys are stars this is just absolutely <laughs> phenomenal there wasn't anything there wasn't anything wrong with what they what they did and like I guess from you I probably got some little cassette tape which had a few tracks on it and it started mm. off they had that track I'm Alright which was just so uh, such a goodie and it um, was Beatle-ish wasn't it that song yeah and the, I mean well they had that kind of from what I remember, I mean, I don't know if this sounds mad, but if you can somehow picture some sort of cross between the jam and the latent buzzards, that yes. that would be in my head the time. Because they had the sort of sort of kitchen sink social commentary in a good way. And they even had sort of like the latent buzzards sort of sense of humour. In, in it as well and i'm not you know i'm not a fan of humor in music at all i mean i you know i think that any zapper recording can be infinitely improved by having all the vocals removed but they <laughs> did it in a way that wasn't they weren't doing it for gags it was it just seemed sort of natural so they had humor and they and they could all really play and they had like oh yes cracking choruses things like stephanie and peter ruffies and toughies um, and they, oh, they also did that cover. What was that cover they did of, um, I'm a man. No, what was it? Um, give me some loving. Give me some loving. That's it. Yeah. Yes, and that was did. just well amazing. And tweets, the guitarist used to sort of spin around on the floor playing that. <laughs> I don't know if it was a Gibson Explorer, but it was like an Explorer or something, but they were just, yeah, they were the first band that I saw that wasn't on TV that I thought, oh my God, they're just like the greatest thing ever. Yes, well, you, you know, the story of my life consists mainly of me finding bands that I think are going to be hugely successful and spending massive amount of time doing everything I can to plug them. Most, and then they, spl and and then that, they split up. <laughs> that includes all the ones you tour, of course. Uh, those as well, yes, yes. On, on, on top of uh, others, lots of other examples such as this. <laughs> so the, the time were a four-piece and uh, they uh, were guitar, bass and drums. Mm -hmm. And as you say, the guitarist who was called Tweets, so-called because he was uh his real name was martin bird uh had spiky hair he he was the only one that looked like a real punk and yeah. he used to wear a, a very uh very flashy day glow extremely tight clothes and uh and run around a lot run around and roll a lot around which yeah which uh made me uh, compare him to a a manic hedgehog in 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 the first review nice Rolling around the stage, uh, and his guitar was an interesting artifact because uh, it was based on a, the idea of a flying V, Gibson flying V, mm. but uh, manufactured, in fact, in, in its entirety by a guy from uh, Gosport called Melvin Hiscock, who was oh. a, is actually a wonderfully uh, skilled guitar maker. And he made his fortune by writing a massively successful book called how to build an electric guitar oh right okay 
which, as you can imagine, to any teenager would be a, a very attractive prospect. Mm. Um, that guitar got a lot of uh, rough treatment, as you might imagine, and it's now to be found in the Portsmouth Guildhall, where, of all things, there is a really good music museum. No. Yes, because P Portsmouth has, as you know, a really good long tradition. And around about the time we're, we're around, it was the time of the arrival of Joe Jackson yeah. and the success of Joe Jackson and all the other Portsmouth bands, many of whom got signed, which made it even more crazy that the time effectively well, didn't get signed. Yeah. Um, so you go to that museum. I went down there uh, about uh, six months ago. Absolutely brilliant. You can spend like a, a whole afternoon in there. And uh, there's a whole... Uh, display case dedicated to the time the other thing they had apart from another guy who's become a lifelong friend of mine phil uh campbell the thatcher who's uh was the bassist is uh, still a bass uh, guitar and player in uh, various local bands um chris corner the drummer who also is still around and they all came from gosport which was a place i had never been but i started going because we became sort of friends and Mm. Um, I would go down and visit them and uh, invariably, inevitably, they lived in a sort of young one style shared house, or some of them did, not all of them did, uh, in Alverstoke, which is a suburb of Gosport. A very odd place, Gosport, um, naval town, yeah. but uh, in possession of one of the best live venues in the South, uh, 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 unlikely indeed, a place called the John Peel, which was equivalent named after, not after our great man, but a different uh, John Peel, the, the, the guy that you see on posters and things with the with the waistcoat. I remember that I used to have on my wall, I had a Time poster, um, probably next to my Debbie Harry poster, which was <laughs> like... A, which was just like a list of about like four dates. I don't know if there was any Winchester ones, but always there was like two John Peel gospel dates on this, yes. on this poster. Right. Okay. Yeah, they, they more or less had a residency. It was. Uh, uh, let me think. Do you remember? Do you remember the March Hare in Hairstock? It's I, very. I've, I've never yes. been in it. Bizarrely. No, really? That's no, odd, isn't no. it? Well, I think I've been in there about twice. I wouldn't particularly recommend it, but it's all, it's all right. But so a modern pub in uh, the middle of a highly built-up um, residential area. So you'd never think that would be a music pub, but there was no. this guy, pretty sure his name was John, who was the um, landlord and he was an ex-boxer and you didn't mess with him, uh, although he was very affable. And he always, he only seemed to have one uh, upper garment, which was a leather waistcoat. I never saw him without that leather waistcoat. He would get bands down from London and they, they would um, have regularly really, really high quality. Not like you walk into a pub and there's some rubbish duo playing covers yeah all these were all original bands because there was a very very strong music scene in portsmouth based loosely rather joe jackson yeah band anyway so uh the other member of the time was this extraordinary lead singer with a golden voice mm. and very good looking guy and very confident i mean all of them they must have been i guess in their early 20s absolutely exploding the confidence yeah and you know going around the south of england playing sometimes really shitty places where they would be uh, you know in danger of their lives really and not being afraid at all to confront the audiences and the so the set was very punky but also full of three-part beautiful harmonies yeah, a la yeah, yeah. beatlesque beatlesque i was thinking bad finger is another band a little bit like the time yeah. um 
Kevin Robinson was this guy's name, and all of them used to turn up to gigs. They, invariably, they turned up at the very last second. They they had their own PA, like bands did in those days, and their own van, mm-hmm. which they would uh, uh, drive around the countryside. And um, But there was a downside to it, and that is that they picked up a bit of a rough following. Mm. And so you could be actually in... Uh, in danger if you went to any of their gigs and uh, there were numerous occasions where I actually was in fear of my life um, because one of the ironic things was that they had this great song you just mentioned called Ruffies and Tuffies yeah which was uh, see if I can remember any of the words the Ruffies and the Tuffies don't bother me just because they're bigger and meaner than me just because they big got big ugly boots I don't care I don't give a hoot and Yes. Of course, in the audience were numerous roughies and toughies hmm. who didn't get the irony of the fact that they were the people that the song was complaining about and would start horrible punch ups and which it was quite sort of common in those days, wasn't it? You know, punk bands in pubs, th- th- there could be a lot of yeah. violence. But the but the time were so they were obviously super intelligent and uh, the, the songs were beautifully crafted and it was very high quality music. It wasn't sort of one, two, three thrash at all. Um, so they had a big following at a place called the Sussex Hotel in Bognor Regis, which could get extremely rowdy. They recorded a live tape there. Um, one time, Birgit and I went up to the Royal Hotel Guildford. They had a connection with Guildford because uh, in their previous incarnation, uh, they'd been a band called Virginia Doesn't. And I think I'm right in saying pretty much the same lineup, but that was their name. Yeah. And they had reached the heady heights of a John Peel session. Oh, I didn't know this. Yes, which uh, you can probably find it online somewhere. Uh, and they did the classic thing that bands did in those days. They'd go up to, they went up to Broadcasting House and hang around outside and slipped a tape into John Peel's hand as he came out. Yeah. Pretty sure they did that. And uh, so. For some reason, actually, maybe someone else can tell us that. I don't know why. Uh, they did change their name to the time. And Paul invented this. He was a good graphic designer and he invented this uh, thing which probably infringed yes, copyright. Yes, of course. Of course, yeah. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it's the NME's logo. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was clever, clever little thing. Yeah. It probably did. The N- yeah, in these days, you would have got a cease and desist, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I would have thought so. Um so their masthead, the enemy masthead, had been converted into the time, and they had that logo on everything they did. And either round about then, or just before, or just after, I can't remember which, but they became the attention of Bruce Foxton, mm. who lived and still lives in Guildford. So uh, he briefly, I think, did some recordings with them and then lost interest, but they did get to support the jam Yeah, at... Portsmouth Guildhall. This is the time, isn't it? Not yes. Virginia. No, this whatever. is the time. Yeah. Uh, and that was, uh, again, some of those jam gigs could be very, very hairy. And I do remember sort of feeling very nervous at that time. But they went down well and did and, and did really well on that night. Um, here we are at lunchtime in the Royal Hotel Guildford. You'd think that would be quite peaceful, wouldn't you? Yeah. But there were a load of really rowdy, drunken people at the front, and they kept trying to sort of climb onto the stage and, you know, nick the equipment and trash things and what have you. And there was one guy there who was in charge of security, and I wouldn't have gone anywhere near him. He was big. 
And he had straggly long hair and a beard. And he was standing like security people do with his arms folded at the front of the stage. Well, these guys weren't at all frightened of him. They just piled onto him and sort of beat him into a pulp. It was absolutely horrible to see. And we crawled on our hands and knees out of the door and into the car and just made good our escape. Uh, so that was one occasion. The other occasion was a famous one, which has gone down in legend, where there was uh, some kind of football-related activity in the uh, St. Mary's Street, where the Joiners' Arms is in Southampton. Right. And, of course, coming from Gosport, they were associated with Portsmouth. Yeah. And there were a lot of fans in there from Portsmouth in the centre of Southampton. And uh, I just remember it felt like what I imagine the Battle of the Little Big Horn would have been like. The whole street... <laughs> This the, the, the scene moved outside and the whole street was full of missiles and things like flying through the air, like, you know, expect bottles and stuff. But these were chairs and tables and Christ knows what were flying up in an arc up to the sky, sort of illuminated by the the um, lampposts. And again, uh, we made good our escape. What happened then was that I brought them to Winchester to do some shows. And I think we put them on the railway yeah. maybe twice or three times. And towards the end of their career, uh, a friend of mine, in fact, someone you know very well, called Baz Mort, who was uh, mm. a, 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 a he, his, I appropriated his name as um, yeah, in Zander. The, the, the chief baddie in Xander, um, and he didn't mind, but he was, he was a music writer as well. He, he, a friend of his had a birthday party and asked Baz to recommend a band, and Baz recommended the time. So they duly came up and they played this uh, uh, birthday party but the trouble was uh some of his friends were a little bit on the uh also on the drunk side and not very friendly and i noticed a guy had his hand in birgit's handbag and was in the process of oh my God. stealing something yeah was in the process of stealing her purse or whatever from inside it and you know me, I don't go up to someone and say, Oi, mate, what the hell do you think you're doing? I sort of, sort of, oh, excuse me. Um, you know. And he turned around and he just was about to lay into me. And various people were sort of holding on to him, but I could see he was about to sort of tear loose and sort of smash me, smash me up. Yeah. So all I could do, the band was in mid-song. I ran or sort of scuttled towards the stage and onto the stage and behind the drum kit. And the the band, bless their hearts, picked up their mic stands and sort of formed a barrier. And they they uh, uh, were sort of brandishing their mic stands, a bit like a lion tamer, you know, has a has a chair and brandishes at the lion. And there were these guys, because this bloke and his mates were all trying to get me for some reason. Uh, they decided they didn't approve of me interfering. And the way I got escaped was, you know, the railway has that side door just by the stage. This, there is, wasn't it, a stage. this is in the railway? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. There, there wasn't a stage in those days. Uh, no. So the, the, the floor was flat. And what, as they stood and protected the stage with their mic stands, I was able to crawl on my hands and knees to that door. Yeah. Get out. And by which time, Birgit had drawn up her little mini just by the door. And I literally scooped myself straight into the back of that mini and we were gone that's, into the night that's nuts that's nuts I, I thought know. although I did think you were going to say by this time Big had taken everybody out <laughs> well, <laughs> and well, the yes. problem was solved <laughs> no, no that's what normally happens yes I've never heard uh, that story did you ever. not did you know that story no, well no. you can imagine me as a as a sort of hippie man of love and peace you can yeah. imagine what that did to me 
Oh, dear. So there we had uh, one of the chief um, actors in that little scenario was, of course, uh, Kevin Robinson. The band had a large bill to pay off their uh, HP on the PA, which they'd bought. Mm. And uh, I think they they changed the drummer and then eventually they were only getting a few gigs and I don't know, they, they, they did a... It was actually a cassette release, which they thought might be successful. They also changed their direction. They, the bands often do this. They they became more serious. They became more serious as they grew older. They sort of began to think, well, we don't want to be playing Stephanie and Peter and Ruffies and Tuffies and things like that anymore. We want to be playing more serious songs. Yeah. So they wrote a whole lot of serious songs and they started to sort of make sort of doing a lot of effects, flanging type sounds on their guitar and making it sound a bit more like bands like the police i suppose and their following dwindled slightly and somehow or other the the record companies just didn't come calling and uh, so that's why you can't go out and buy any releases by the time because they they never released anything officially on vinyl at all um which seems crazy doesn't it well it it, it just it seems like so many stories of the music industry extremely unjust wouldn't you say yeah <laughs> when you totally, when you think totally. of all the rubbish bands that were getting signed and at least managing to get one or two albums out into the public domain the fact that they they that didn't happen to them just seems so wrong i'm almost sitting here thinking that maybe one of the reasons they didn't get signed is because they were in a way so good in in so much <laughs> that you know a record company would have nothing to nothing to be able to do with them because yeah, I think they had might. it well they, be they, right there. you know that there, there was yeah. there was there was no kind of bit of hidden talent that they could mold into the thing that they wanted it was the time where were perfectly formed the, yeah, every, everything yeah. everything was right there was nothing left to do i think you're probably right they, 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 they that's a great way of explaining what the appeal of them saying perfectly formed because they they, they really were that they, they musically absolutely uh, I- I- impeccable, yeah. but also with this extraordinarily unstudied but 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 irresistible image, mainly uh, on the basis of Kevin's extra- extraordinarily developed sense of humour and mimicry. So he would do I- 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 impressions as well. Mm. Uh, one of his favourite was Frank Spencer, um, and uh, that's, and it wasn't nearly as uh, as naff as that sounds at all. Uh, and I think he probably wrote a lot of the lyrics as well. So. You could tell straight away that that guy somehow or other was going to make his name. He just wasn't quite sure exactly how it was going to be. So they formed this 60s cover band. And uh, one of the most enjoyable bands I've ever come across because they kept all that talent and all the punk energy. But they did only 60s covers uh, such as Can't Buy Me Love and the give me some loving and, and just a load of things like that. And then of course they started to get work again because they could go and work in the social clubs. Yeah. And that was how they, I mean, it was very nice the way they finished it all together. They, they, they t- paid off the PA because they started getting decent fees and they decided in a very dignified way. Did I tell you what they were called? Jerry Hackett and the fringes. Oh, That's what that band was. I know the name. I know you've mentioned the name, but I never put yes. two and two together that that was the time post time kind of thing. Yes, it was great. And they they had two um, little slogans. One was don your mop tops and they did wear wigs and suits and uh, I suppose a precursor in some ways to the Beatles tributes bands. But they, of course, they weren't a tribute band at all. 
uh, and they they designated their sound as the Fairham Creek Beat, which I always thought was just <laughs> so perfect. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> a real thing. Uh, yes, exactly. Well, if you've ever been to Fairham Creek, you can imagine it. Yes, yeah. it's quite it's quite sort of romantic down there. Um, and uh, the height of their career was, uh, I think, I, I don't know if I got the gig for them, but they managed to get a gig at Sparschalt Agricultural College, which I think was probably uh, quite well paid. And uh, it went off without any fights or anything unpleasant. And so uh, that was that. And then it went quiet. And I think they all went off and got jobs. And funnily enough, I forgot to mention that they would all turn up at gigs straight from work. Yeah. And... Um, they tended to be very dirty, if that's not too awful a thing to say. They, they tended to have um, big hobnail boots with uh, with mud all over them. And um, uh, come straight to the gig with their working clothes before they would change into... They had nice outfits. They had some red, red and white actual sort of stage gear, not suits, but shirts and things. Um, but... I often wondered what their jobs were because it was obviously something something physical. Uh, and it turns out I just actually um, sent an email to Paul, who now lives in Oklahoma, yeah, because I knew there was something weird in what they were doing. Of course, down in Gosport, everything's naval. And I'm just going to read what um, Paul has written to me because uh, this will be accurate. And, of course, uh, then I can't get sued if it's not. Martin, that's tweets, worked at the Institute of Naval Medicine in Crescent Road. Now, if you've ever been to Gosport, Gosport, oh, I get into such trouble because my son-in-law is from Gosport and I sort of sometimes make sarcastic remarks about it and he doesn't appreciate it at all. But it's not the most beautiful place. Come on, it isn't a beautiful place. But it has got a lovely, lovely Crescent in it, which is actually called Crescent Road. Uh, uh, as a park and some London houses that wouldn't be out of place in expensive parts of London or Bath or whatever, you know, absolutely lovely. In the Crescent Road was the Admiralty Marine Technology Establishment, known as Amty. <laughs> and uh, this place would attract fairly frequent demonstrations from uh, people uh, who were anti-vivisection, which is probably pretty much everybody, because a herd of goats was maintained there. Blimey. Yes. And allegedly, it says here, for the purposes of animal experimentation. Ooh. Yes. But he says, this is Paul, he says, I can say no more because at the time of employment, I was required to sign the Official Secrets Act. Oh, how exciting. Mm, I know. This is uh, this is kind of uh, another spy issue coming up here, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's... Oh, oh wait a minute. Yeah, that is, because this is the men that stare at goats. That's what it is. That's the experiment. So you've got Paul and his office and they're doing like psychological warfare on goats. This is what it's all about. And remote viewing and all that kind of thing. Right. OK. Well, no wonder. No wonder Paul's been living in America for quite a while. Now. <laughs> There's something about goats, isn't there? They're, they're, they're such strange creatures. And this thing, goat yoga, is actually a thing, isn't it? You, you, you lie and goats walk on you and things like that. No, really? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, you can, you can look it up on the internet. If you, if you Google I'm goat yoga. I'm not Googling that. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I, I know about it because um, Kate in the Archers was uh, going to do some um, goat yoga at one stage in, in her uh, 
alternative uh, therapy center no but, no uh, you see you, that what, what that actually is that's a coded secret message to paul to <laughs> to to kind of like go into operation he's sort of like jason Bourne or something so when they mention goat yoga on the archers paul's listening to that with his vpn on iplayer and, and now god knows what paul's doing he's been sort of like he's been switched into action it's like manchurian candidate kind of yeah. stuff <laughs> God knows what's happening in Oklahoma now. <laughs> well, he has recently retired, so maybe he, he had to retire because it might have all come out. Mm. Mm. Anyway, he was required to sign the official secrets acts. So he says here, I can neither confirm nor deny any information other than that which is available in the public domain. But in my defense, he said, uh, my role was peripheral to the sinister goings on, in brackets, alleged. Uh, Martin had a janitorial role and uh, I did the same but with the ad added talent of being a forklift truck driver which I had no idea mm. so my friend Paul is, was a forklift truck driver which makes me extremely jealous I'd love to zoom around on a forklift I can't imagine that Oliver you and a forklift <laughs> it's not going to end well for anybody I don't... Have, you, have you ever had a cash and carry card have you ever been to Booker's yeah um, Booker's it, Macro yeah. It's a complete miracle, isn't it, that people are not regularly killed because people streak around there in their forklifts, in and out, weaving in and out of the innocent public, like well, you and me. Not just the forklifts, but those kind of like really low, big trolleys oh, that they have. Frightening, are, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, they take a bit of stopping. They've got definitely a, a mind of their own. I will have you know that when I worked on a farm, which I did for many summers as a student, hmm. uh, I used to use a thing called a farm hand, which is, have you ever seen? <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> <laughs> me and me and the farm hand. Oh. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about that anymore. It was all deep in the past. Call me Lady Chatterley. It was a it was a grabber. Uh, it, it had uh, yes, it, it was a thing on the on the front of a tractor, and you could use it to pick up bales without touching the bales and put them on the back of a, 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 a of a, a trolley. Well, that's not the word I'm thinking of. A trailer. That's the word. Yeah. And then drive them to the barn, and then you could unload them from the trailer, also using the same implement, which is like a huge thing on the front of a massive tractor with lots of. Um, very sharp spikes that were uh, operated pneumatically, which would grab the bales, yeah. and and then you can deposit them on the trailer. Which, of course, then you had to hook your tractor to the trailer and tow it to the barn. So the whole thing could be done with one person. They used to have, you know, if, if, you, if you read Thomas Hardy, um, whole families of people getting the uh, getting the straw up together. Yeah. But with a with a with a fireman, you could grab uh, the straw from the fields and take it and stack it in the barn without having any assistance. So there you go. That's pretty near to a forklift trunk. Trunk, hey, hey. is it not? Yeah. God. Okay. A forklift trunk. Sorry, I'm trying to think of an elephant joke, but uh... no, don't, don't. <laughs> no, not after all the farmhand jokes. No, we don't want any elephant jokes. Let's not, let's not um, combine those two in our collective imaginations. Um, Richard, fast forward to the Edinburgh Festival. I yes. don't even know what year it would be. I don't know. I know. But I you, tell you, you and I would probably have said, uh, "I wonder what became of 
Kevin Robinson, the lead singer of the time. Yeah, well, Ke he started turning up on things like Fist of Fun, Leon Herring's that first TV show, doing sort of little sketches. And so he became, yeah, he became a comedian, didn't he? And like a well-known comedian for mm -hmm. in, in various, various things. And then, yeah, so shooting forward years to, I guess this is probably 2000 or 1999 or something like that. I was up at the Edinburgh Fringe because I was working for the Tower Arts Centre and I went up with, with John and yeah. And there was one night when I'm going to fabulously name drop now. Oh, come on. I was, I was out late drinking with Noel and Julian from the Mighty Boosh. Of and course. we were in, I don't know where we were, but it would be somewhere like the Gilded Balloon, one of those really late night places. And it, this is probably sort of two, three o'clock in the morning or something like that. And I see Kevin there and I'm not sure he, who he's talking to, but Edinburgh being Edinburgh, he was probably talking to Al Murray and somebody else or whatever. I don't know. But I tapped, Stuart Lee, maybe. It could be. Yeah, it's that, that kind of thing. And I tapped him on the shoulder, which if you're a normal like me, that's not the thing to do in Edinburgh. I mean, I think all those people kind of feel safe in Edinburgh because people just don't do that. Oh, yeah. So I tapped Kevin on the shoulder and I went, Kevin, Kevin, just, just, just want to say one thing to you. And he turned around and he looked at me and he had this kind of look in his eyes as if to say, oh, you know, I'm out with my mates. I don't want to be bothered. And I just mm. said to him, just want to say what a fucking great band the time were. And his eyes kind of lit up and he was just like going, <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yes. We fucking were, weren't we? We fucking were. It was just like, and then I just like walked off. But it was like a wonderful, yeah, a wonderful moment. But actually, in a way, equally as wonderful is over the last however many years is getting to know Phil, the the bass player. Because I remember there was a time that we all we all met up down at the Willow and you said you were bringing your mate Phil was coming. And I hadn't put two and two together until just before. And I was I think I was saying to you, like, do I know Phil? And you were going, ah. yeah, Phil bass player of the time and i still remember like being in the willow you know as a, as a grown adult like sitting down yes. and eating food but i was with phil campbell like the times <laughs> bass player and it was really sort of um yeah i was a bit starstruck so yeah i've been yeah starstruck by but i don't know i don't know how to explain it really but it, it makes sense because like i was going back to what i originally said that was the sense that you got of that band when you were like 14 15 years old yeah. And so it almost was like meeting Strummer or meeting Bob Mould or something. You well, know, I'm like... slightly, st I was out with him last night, actually. We oh, ventured, to, we ventured to a country pub and sat in the garden, but Very nice. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still slightly starstruck and I see him like once a week. <laughs> Uh, he's a he's a very skilled person he's a thatcher yeah and uh he's got his own company and he uh he, his company thatched the um shakespeare's globe in london well there was that brilliant bit of um when when the guardian was still a broadsheet they did this whole series of like photographs on the on the double page spread in the center oh, pages yes. and there was one of phil thatching the globe and it's just this sort of like big shot of london reaching out in the distance and in yes. kind of like a middle foreground, there's the globe and there's Phil up a ladder doing his thing. And I so, once saw a little while ago, because I know uh, 
I know Phil's had this thing about meeting up with other people called Phil Campbell and there being a yes. town a town in the States called Phil called Campbell. Called Phil Campbell. Yep. Yeah, and they have like all the Phil Campbells get together and go there. I was once at Glasgow Airport and I saw a guy wearing a T-shirt and written on the T-shirts was Phil Campbell. He just had the name <laughs> Phil Campbell written on his T-shirt and I thought... Shall I go up and take a photograph or ask him about it? But I thought, that's like really creepy, so I'm not going to. But yeah, I've seen somebody wearing a T-shirt which has just got Phil Campbell written on it. Well, that's because there's a really good uh, singer-songwriter called Phil Campbell. And oh, is Phil, Phil, oh, now this is going to be difficult to explain uh, without sounding absolutely ridiculous. But Phil Campbell, i.e. our Phil Campbell, and yeah. I, yeah. travelled down to Portsmouth to the cellars a few years ago to see... Phil Campbell, the singer, and I was able to do an introduction. So I, I, I was able to bring them together and say, Phil Campbell, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Phil Campbell. And of course, they got on like a house on fire. He's it's really bit, good, actually. It's all a bit Spartacus, isn't it? I'm Phil <laughs> Campbell, and so is my wife. <laughs> well, um, Kevin um, was I I in receipt of... Uh, my first book volume that we've established that you did the original cover, which was very bright, uh, brightly colored. And mm. he, he passed it to his friend, Stuart Lee. And I've got to tell you, probably the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me in my life was when Stuart Lee was uh, interviewed in the observer where he writes the column anyway. Yeah. And, uh, but he was on the outside of their color, magazine yeah and and uh it pictured him he was talking about his favorite books yeah and unfortunately he's not going to say that volume is one of his favorite books but he was opposing in front of a bookshelf and if you zoom in as uh, <laughs> authors like me do desperate for any kind of sort of feeling of gratification you can actually see a copy of volume on the shelf uh, which I thought, well, he probably never read it, but he had read it because he referred to it in the interview, in fact, and uh, and and mentioned Kevin. Wow. Now, Kevin, you can see a lot. Kevin had a quite a large role in Hot Fuzz, yeah, and uh, yeah. various other films. Recently, he played a vicar in a, a. This is a really odd series that I didn't think worked particularly well, but he was probably the best thing in it, called Sanderton, which was a an unfinished Jane Austen novel that. Uh, somebody had kind of completed and turned into a, a long series uh, of you know people in bonnets on beaches falling in and out of love right. and and uh kevin played the uh, the the vicar the pastor i suppose um but again a big role so and he he still sings occasionally uh, he's he, he married uh had children quite late in life and uh, is a buddhist and a very very sort of calm peaceful and i think at the time of the time, if I can say that, I think that, that he, he was a bit sort of an angry young man, you know, could yeah. maybe have gone off the rails slightly. And uh, uh, to see him making such a sort of success of his life is is absolutely wonderful to, to, to observe. And is there, has there ever been any kind of time reunion? Oh, I, I've tried to, I've tried to arrange it. It's just because... Kevin's so busy, I think, just trying to get them all in the same place and to actually have it happen. I really don't know. Why, I mean, why ruin the memory as well? Why well, ruin the memory? That the other band that I talked about before from from uh, Pool with Tours, they tried to do a reunion, and it kind of just ended up opening old wounds, and 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 they regretted doing it at all. So it's possibly best 
uh, as we say in the old expression, to let the old sleeping dogs, sleeping goats, lie in this occasion and uh, and just remember them with great uh, happiness. Yeah, what a band, what a band. <laughs> 